Acts chapter 14, we come this morning to consider verses 8 through 18. And as I read, pay careful attention because in our text, two miracles occur. Two miracles occur and pay attention to how those miracles are recognized by different people. You're going to witness both miracles happening, and then you're going to notice that there is a contrast between what different parties see in reference to those miracles. And all of this will consider the grace and power of God, and especially in relationship to how God blesses his people by exposing and expelling idols. Let's give our careful attention to the word of God. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him, seeing and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own way, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Amen. This is the word of God. Our text today begins by laying a foundation. And that foundation set before us is the grace and power of God in the gospel. Paul and Barnabas fled Lystra where they continued uh, fled Lystra, fled to Lystra where they continued to preach the gospel and then there they meet this man who has been crippled from birth and all of these events that unfold serve the purpose of magnifying the power and the grace of God. We see this initially in three ways. First of all, the very presence of Paul and Barnabas, along with the good news that they proclaim, glorifies the grace and the power of God. The town of Lystra did not deserve the presence of these apostles, nor the glorious message that they preached. Instead, the town of Lystra, as we clearly see here in our text, they were content with their own idol worship. And yet, despite these things, powerfully and graciously, God sends to them the good news of Jesus Christ. Second, the faith of this crippled man glorifies the grace and power of God. The message of the gospel was sovereignly sent to Lystra, and then this man attended to the word of God as it was preached, 
And as he attended to the word of God, faith formed within his heart. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so as Paul proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ, faith forms within this man's heart as he is powerfully and graciously saved. This man is born again. He is born from above. That day he woke as if every other day. He woke dead in his trespasses and sins. He woke unaware of his great need of the sovereign grace and mercy of God. And yet suddenly the sovereign grace and mercy of God appear. And he is powerfully saved. Third, the power and grace of God are magnified by the sign and wonder of this man's miraculous healing. Even though he had just been born again, God blessed this man by showing mercy to him. And God blessed everyone else there by showing this sign to confirm the gospel that was just preached. This man was crippled from birth. And everyone knew that this man had never walked. And so Paul intentionally raises his voice to highlight what's about to happen. And he says, stand upright on your feet. And because of this, everyone sees what happens. This man springs up and he begins walking and God magnifies his infinite power and his glorious grace. So the power and the grace of God are put on display here in the presence of the gospel, in the faith formed within this man, and in the healing sign that signified the power of the gospel. God's grace is magnified as this as the preaching, this faith, and this healing come undeserved and unsolicited by the people in Lystra. And God's power is magnified as faith forms within this man's heart so that he is suddenly saved and as life fills his limbs so that he springs up and walks. But as glorious as this is, this is just the foundation of our text. This is just the foundation of our text as God desires to bless us with so much more. You see, the power and grace displayed here serve an even greater purpose as that grace and power of God are used to expose idolatry and then to expel idolatry. As the text continues, we witness how the grace and power of God are used to end idolatry. The people in our text are given over to this pagan form of idolatry. And in in this text, God designs to end their idolatry. God has graciously, though, given us this word, not just to examine the idolatry of old, but to expose and to expel idolatry from our hearts as well. In John's first epistle, he writes, saying, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. John writes to the church. John writes to believers. And he calls us to wage war against the idols of our own hearts. You see, idolatry is not just something that we read about in ancient stories. Idolatry is not just the making of statues or other objects of worship. No, idolatry is a sin that we as God's people must wage war against. John Calvin famously wrote that the human heart is an idol factory because our hearts can make an idol out of anything. And so we need this text today because in it, God's power and grace deal with our idolatry. So how does God deal with our idols? What does the power and grace of God do to expose and to expel our idolatry. 
How does God end our idolatry? Well, let's begin first considering how the grace and power of God exposes idolatry. The grace and power of God exposes idolatry. How so? Well, this passage is very, very insightful. In the act of uncovering idolatry, the word of God uh, presents us with a very helpful contrast. Look first at verse 9 in your Bibles. What does Paul see? There Paul sees the faith of the paralytic. And then a contrast in verse 11. What do the crowds see? The crowds see the miraculous sign performed by Paul. So Paul perceives saving faith, whereas the crowd sees only the miraculous sign. And so the passage begins by teaching us that idolatry is often exposed along the lines of what one sees. Idolatry is often exposed along the lines of what one sees and particularly what rejoices one's heart. Here in our text, Paul somehow sees faith, something that cannot be seen with only our eyes. And while the crowds miss this man's faith, they are wowed by a sign and wonder. They are unable to see faith, the unseen, and yet their hearts rejoice with the spectacular. Paul's attention is drawn to the eternal, that man's saving faith, that man's salvation whereas the crowd's attention is fixed upon the temporary. Paul is looking at things through the lens of God's word, whereas the crowd is looking upon these events through the lens of their own culture. You see, somewhere between 50 and 80 years earlier, the Roman writer Ovid, in his book, The Metamorphosis, or his story, The Metamorphosis, he wrote about Zeus and Hermes, gods who came down and lived among the people. And so the culture prepared this people to misunderstand, to misname, to misinterpret God's grace and power among them. And so here the grace and power of God expose the idolatry in this culture along the lines of what these people see and what it is that rejoices their hearts. Next, notice that God's grace and power expose idolatry for what it really is. Again, we have to observe the fact that these people are looking upon the grace and power of God. And they have just heard the word of God preached. And they were witnesses of this man's miracle. And looking upon the grace and power of God in these ways, we can see here how idolatry empties, as it were, the real working of God. Because of the blinding effects of their idolatry, this crowd cannot see things for what they really are. Instead, they misinterpret the grace and power of God, making it into something else. And so all idolatry takes the good and the gracious gifts of God and sinfully makes them into something else. Here in our text, these people take the grace and the power of God and they, take it, they, they turn it into the acts of gods, gods made in the imagination of men. They have heard the gospel preach and Paul, uh, uh, preached by Paul and they have witnessed God's powerful working among them. And instead of using that word to make sense of the events in front of them, they just continue in their idolatry unaware. So see how this idolatry forms 
the impulses of the people. Immediately, the priest of Zeus comes out with oxen and garlands to offer sacrifices with the crowds. These people believe that if they are going to continue to receive good, the goods that they desire, these miraculous signs, if they are going to receive these things from the gods, then they need to immediately serve and sacrifice to these gods. They need to exchange something for the goods that they see. It seems from how these events unfold immediately that this is the instinct formed in us by idolatry. And so finally, we need to see the enslaving power of idolatry. The crowds speak, the text says, in their local tongue. And so it takes Paul and Barnabas some time to understand what these people were really up to. But the moment they realize what is going on, they immediately tear their garments, rush out into the crowds, and they vehemently deny all of the conclusions of the people. But notice what happens. Even though Paul and Barnabas, even though Paul and Barnabas vehemently deny the conclusions of the people, even though they come out and they say, we are no gods at all, we are just men like you, they deny the conclusions of the people. Look at verse 18. It still says, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Isn't that amazing? This idolatry has been exposed for what it really is, and it has been opposed in clear, specific terms by Paul and Barnabas. But idolatry is so powerful and deceptive that even when it is utterly exposed for what it is, it can still keep the mind and the heart believing in it. In other words, idolatry is irrational. It doesn't need to make sense. In fact, in Psalm 115, God presents idolatry in what seems to be ridiculous terms. Man makes an idol with his hands. It's a a creation of his own imagination. He forms it. But even though it has eyes, it can't see. Even though it has a mouth, it can't speak. Even though it has ears, it can't hear. It has hands, but can't touch. It has feet, but it cannot walk. It is ridiculous that any would worship an idol. And yet we still see here. So powerful is the deception and enslavement of idolatry that despite it being obvious and exposed... Many still bow down to these things in obedience. It could be very easy for us right now to ridicule or to dismiss this ancient form of idolatry that we see here in our text. After all, none of us is going to uh, misname or misidentify another person as a God in the flesh. We're not going to think that someone is Zeus and another Hermes. And similarly, we're not going to trot out any ox with garlands to offer sacrifice to them. But to leave this exposure of idolatry 
to the ancient world would be a mistake because in our text, we need to see that the grace and power of God are being idolized. And if we are not careful, we can be guilty of the same kind of idolatry. And Jesus makes this clear with his disciples. Do you remember what happened when Jesus sent the 72 out two by two, giving them power to perform signs and wonders? Well, they went out with that power given to them by Christ, and they performed many, many miracles. And then when they all returned to Jesus, they came reporting of what happened. They were filled with joy. They were rejoicing because even the demons were subject to them in Christ's name. Do you remember how Jesus responds to them? He says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The disciples were guilty of idolizing, as it were, the grace and power of God. And Jesus didn't say, I think this is, this is very interesting. Jesus didn't say, while you rejoice in those things, don't forget to rejoice that your name is written in heaven. He said, don't rejoice in these things. Instead, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see, even the disciples of Jesus who walked this earth alongside him, they were still prone to this kind of idolatry. And Jesus exposed their idolatry by examining what it was that captured their attention and what made them rejoice. The disciples returned with joy because they were able to perform these powerful signs. They rejoiced in the seen and the temporary. But Jesus, like a good and careful surgeon, sought to remove that cancer by teaching them that they ought to rejoice instead in the unseen and the eternal. What captured the heart of those disciples was still what would have amazed this world, what this world would have found impressive. But Jesus blessed them by exposing that idolatry in order to give them something far better. And that is why Jesus is gracious to expose our idolatry. He intends to give us something far better. That is why this word before us is a gracious word, because Jesus designs to graciously and gently expose our own idolatry. So we need to use the lens of this word to examine our own lives. What is it that captures your attention? And what is it that causes your heart to rejoice? Are your eyes fixed upon the great unseen, eternal, and unchanging realities that belong to you in Christ? Or do you find that your emotions are hitched to the ever-changing circumstances in this world? Another way that we can think about this, or another way that we can examine our hearts, is consider what it is that we serve and sacrifice for. 
The idolatry in our text was exposed when these people immediately come out to serve and to sacrifice to these quote-unquote gods so that they might receive more and more of what they wanted. They wanted more of these temporary healings. They wanted more of the miraculous. They wanted more of what they could see. And so we could ask the question, what is it that we serve and sacrifice for? Do we engage with God as if our service and our sacrifice is going to then get for us what can be spent in the temporary? Or do we serve and sacrifice God because of all that we have already received? Because of those great unseen realities that already belong to us in Jesus Christ? Do we serve and sacrifice because of great gratitude in our hearts? Or have we slipped into a form of idolatry where we serve and sacrifice because we want a certain way of life? That we are hoping to be blessed with certain things that can be spent temporarily. This is why this text is a great mercy to us. This is why this text is so wonderful. Just as a doctor may bring immediate pain by lancing a boil, he designs to bring immediate relief and lasting healing. It is a great mercy to have God expose our idols. It is a great mercy by, for God to come and to teach us what we are really looking at and longing for, what our, our emotions are attached to, if you will. Here we have seen the grace and power of God being idolized and exposing the idols of human hearts. So what happens when we examine our hearts? With the help of the Holy Spirit, what is he saying? Your eyes are fixed here. Your emotions are attached to these things. Is he exposing idols? Well, if he is, and as he is, praise be to God that the text goes on, because Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, I'm going to leave you there now to deal with your own idols. He says, no, I'm going to expel these idols from your heart. And that is what we see as we go on as the text continues. Let us go on to see next how the grace and power of God expels our idols. To expose idolatry, the text led us to look upon that contrast between what Paul saw and what captured his attention to what the crowd saw and what captured their attention. To expel idolatry, God's word turns our attention to the contrast in response. How do the crowds respond to the power and grace of God? And how do Paul and Barnabas respond as well? In their idolatry, the crowds responded to the grace and power of God by misidentifying it, by misnaming it, and therefore by misusing it. But as we look upon Paul and Barnabas, we see a beautiful contrast. And that contrast shows us how it is that the grace and power of God expels idols from our hearts. So with the help of the Holy Spirit, let us look with the eyes of faith to see how it is that God expels these idols from our hearts. 
First of all, looking to Paul and Barnabas and their response, notice the spirit of their response. Because this spirit comes from the Holy Spirit. Because of the grace and power of God already at work in Paul and Barnabas, they are able to see this world as it really is. They are able to see the events in front of them for what they really are. And they recognize, they recognize the response of the crowd as idolatry. And that is why they rush out immediately into the crowd. This is why they tear their garments and they ask, Men, why are you doing these things? Paul and Barnabas vehemently oppose this idolatry. And they're not given to any sort of temptation to say, Well, maybe this is the best response of the people to the living God. No, they don't entertain this idolatry. They don't enjoy it at all. Instead, as soon as they see it for what it is, they make it their aim to end it. So second, notice the source of their response. They say, We bring you good news. In other words, we bring you the gospel. You see, Paul and Barnabas know the grace and power of God personally. They know the grace and power of God experientially. They know the grace and power of God within their own lives. And that is what prepares them to accept no imitation and to accept no substitute. The source of their response is the good news of Jesus Christ. The source of their response is that personal experience of communion with God, of His grace and of His power. And knowing the grace of the gospel reveals all other things to be an empty imitation, to be empty by comparison. Which brings us third to the rationale of their response. They say, listen, we are men, we are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. The rationale of their response is first that all idolatry is utterly empty. All idolatry is utterly empty. They call this response of the people, their service and their sacrifice, a vain thing. Vain means empty. It is an empty thing. It is utterly empty to seek from the creation what can be found in the creator alone. And so Paul and Barnabas reason with the crowd, calling them to repentance. And so forth, see the concrete steps of repentance. Concrete steps of their response. Paul and Barnabas call the crowd to repentance, and they carefully outline what that looks like. It is first a turning away. And it is a turning away from vain things. Repentance begins with a turning away, and this turning away happens because you are able to recognize the emptiness of idolatry. You are able to see the vanity in this thing that has been exalted in your heart or in your mind. It may be, as it is in this text, that you have your attention set upon a good gift from God, but one that has been emptied of any of its real value because you are exalting it into the place of God himself. Repentance begins with turning away. 
and recognizing the emptiness of idolatry. And then it continues with a turning to. Repentance is a turning away from vain things and a turning to. Turning to what? Well, real repentance is turning away from idols and turning to the living God. The real way that God expels idols from our hearts is by driving them them out of our hearts with his own presence. That is how God expels idols from our hearts. Here the crowd is captivated by the power of God as seen in a sign. But Paul and Barnabas call them to turn away from such vanity and instead to see the infinite power of God in an unseen salvation. They say, you want to know what should rejoice your heart? Not that this man can walk again, but that he will live eternally. Here the crowd is moved by a temporary healing, but Paul and Barnabas call upon them to be overcome instead by the giver of eternal life. The real way that idols are expelled from the human heart is when the power and grace of God so flood the heart that it drives out everything else. Which is why, fifth and finally, Paul and Barnabas end with the motivation for their response. Paul and Barnabas rush out into the crowd and they ask the question, why? Which means they're getting at the heart of the issue or they're getting at the motivation behind their actions. And they say, consider the right motivation for your repentance. Why should you turn away from vain things to the living God? And then he expounds upon who God is. He says, he is infinitely powerful. He made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He made all things by the word of his power. He's not only powerful, but he's incredibly patient. He says, in past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. He is incredibly patient, and he has witnessed to himself in this world by his great goodness and grace. Paul says, he did not, or he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Here Paul and Barnabas are teaching the crowds to see things as they really are. To understand the unseen realities that are hidden behind everything that they have ever experienced. And to interpret reality no longer through the lens of their culture, but through the lens of God's word. Paul says, behind every ounce of good that you have ever experienced in this world, is the living God. And he wants your heart. He is the end of everything else. He is what your soul is longing for. And idolatry is the enemy. Because idolatry has blinded their eyes to the living God. Idolatry is the enemy because it has fixed their attention upon the seen instead of the unseen. Idolatry is the enemy because it has taught them to love and to value the temporary over the eternal. And idolatry is the enemy because it has taught them to fall in love with vain things 
instead of the living God. And so, it is the enemy of idolatry that God graciously exposes and then powerfully expels from our hearts by turning us to himself. Brothers and sisters, the good news of Jesus Christ is that he came to deliver us from all of these vain things so that we might know, love, and worship the living God. And the idolatry of our hearts, even as believers, is so prevalent that we can make an idol out of anything The idolatry of our hearts is so deceptive that we will often turn to worship the creation instead of the creator. The idolatry of our hearts is so deceptive that we can twist and turn the grace and power of God into an idol. And yet here in God's word we see the goodness and the grace of God once again. Because here God is with his gospel intending to expose the idols of our hearts and then to expel them out of them. Such is the goodness and the graciousness of God in the gospel, that he is here with his word to expose our idols, that we might turn from vain things and love again the living God. Listen to how the Apostle Paul ends his first epistle. He says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we might know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Even in the Christian life, we are susceptible to falling prey to idolatry once again. And so we must be on guard against the deceptive ways of idolatry, which can make an idol out of anything. May the Spirit search our hearts this morning to expose our idols. May he reveal to us any ways in which we have put anything out of place and allowed anything to steal from us that great joy that comes from knowing the living God. And may he restore that joy once again. May he teach us to never live based upon the seen or the temporary. To rejoice in the changing circumstances in this world, in in the ways in which this world would rejoice, but let us instead rejoice in the unseen and the eternal, in the ways that will always remain untouched by the changing circumstances of this world. May we rejoice that our names are written in heaven. May we rejoice as we see sinners coming to faith in Christ, May we rejoice in Jesus Christ, God himself, Emmanuel, God with us. And may we rejoice in being known and knowing the living God. Our passage began by laying a beautiful foundation, the power and grace of God in the gospel. 
Paul and Barnabas come preaching in Lystra. We see the good news of Jesus Christ being brought to a people who were lost in darkness and dead in their trespasses and sins. We see that through that preaching, this sinner comes to saving faith, and he is graciously blessed with this miraculous sign. Well, brothers and sisters, God wants to use this word to revive our joy this morning. By unhitching our hearts from the temporary and changing things of this world. And by attaching our hearts once again to the glorious unseen realities that are revealed to us in the gospel. So I want you to look around you right now with the eyes of faith. Because if you do, you are going to see the miracle of faith that fills the hearts of so many. You are going to see the powerful and gracious working of Jesus in hearts and lives all around you. And you will remember that God has been so infinitely good to you and to each believer here by turning us away from vain things. To love and to know the living God. We have been seeing time and again through the book of Acts. The church facing different things that have called the church to persist. And what we see here in our text is God's good design to strengthen us as his people. Which is why Paul will later write in 2 Corinthians 4 saying, So we do not lose heart. He says that after recounting all of the trials that they have been facing. He says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. What is God's design to renew the inner man? What is God's design to strengthen your heart in the Christian journey? Well, he goes on and he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. God's desire to strengthen you, God's design to strengthen you as his people is to fix your eyes of faith upon Jesus Christ and all that you have in him. And so in closing, I want you to consider two of the most profound and joy-filled statements found in Scripture. And I want you to see what is offered to you by believing through the ministry of God's word in your heart. The first is found in Psalm 73, and you know how that psalm begins. Asaph says, I looked upon the changing circumstances of this world, and I almost despaired. I almost left the faith. But then he went into the sanctuary of God, and there he saw what can be seen nowhere else. He saw these unseen realities, and because... He belongs to God and God to him. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, there is nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart 
and my portion forever. That is God's design for you in the gospel. That you might live so free from this world and so full of the glory of Jesus Christ that you can say, I desire nothing else but you. Similarly, Psalm 16. In Psalm 16, it says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. Oh, to be able to say those words. To be able to look upon life and say, All is well. But what causes the psalmist to say those words? What is he looking upon? Well, the previous verse says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Therefore, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Therefore, I have a beautiful inheritance. He says earlier in the psalm, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Those are hearts unhitched from this world. Unhitched from the desires that this world teaches us to have and fixed upon the greatest desire, the the desire that your soul was designed for, the living God. So brothers and sisters, let our joy be fixed upon the living God, upon these unseen eternal things and no more upon the fleeting and ever-changing things of this world so that we will be unmoved in love, in worship, and in joy. Let us turn from these vain things once again to the living God. Let's pray together. Lord God, we love you and we love your word. And we can say again, as we sang earlier, that as deer's pant, as the deer pants for streams, so my soul longs for you, the living God. We can say with the psalmist, apart from you, I have no good thing. We can say, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on this earth that I desire besides you. Oh, Lord, we love the way you represent hearts that are in love with you, that have turned from vain things to you, the living God. And we ask that you would restore our joy again in these things. Lord, will you please expose the idols of our hearts that blind us from you, the living God, and then then expel them from ourself by giving giving us yourself, 
May we as your people be a mystery to this world because our happiness has been unhitched from everything that this world has to offer and we are fixed, filled with joy upon you, the living God. Will you bless us with the greatest gift of all, which is yourself? Will you expel idols from our hearts? And then glorify your name in this world by causing us to live with this joy and worship that is immovable. Do this, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn together in our psalm books now to Psalm 16d.